0: Jeremiah chapter 38, verses 1 to 13. And the words should appear on the screen behind me as well. Shepatiah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Pashur, Jehuel, son of Shelmiah, and Pashur, son of Malchijah, heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said, This is what the Lord says Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague, but whoever goes over to Babylon will live. They will escape with their lives. They will live. And this is what the Lord says. The city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon, who will capture it. Then the officials said to the king, this man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city, as well as the people, by the things he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. So they took Jeremiah and put him in the cistern of Malchijah, the king's son, who was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. But Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the cistern while the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate. Ebed-Melech went out of the palace and said to him, my lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he is to starve, where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city. The king commanded Ebed-Melech the Cushite to take 30 men from here and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to a room under the treasury in the palace. He took some old rags and worn out clothes from there and let them down with ropes to Jeremiah in the cistern. Ebed-Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, put these old rags and worn out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. Jeremiah did so. And they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. We're now going to jump ahead to chapter 39, verse 8. And this is after the Babylonians have captured the city. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, carried out, carried into exile To Babylon, the people who remained in the city, along with those who had gone over to him and the rest of the people. But Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, left behind in the land of Judah, some of the poor people who had owned nothing. And at that time, he gave them the vineyards and the fields. Now, yet Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. So Nebuzaradon, the commander of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, a chief official, Nergal Shariza, a high official, and all the other officers of the king of Babylon, sent and had Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard. They turned him over to Gedaliah, son of Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, to take him back home. So he remained among his own people. While Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him. Go and tell Ebed-Melech, the Cushite, this is what the Lord Almighty said. The God of Israel says, I'm about to fulfill my words against this city, words concerning disaster, not prosperity. At that time, they will be fulfilled before your eyes but I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be given into the hands of those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me, declares the Lord.
1: Thank you, Dave. And I think also you deserve a little ripple of applause for pronouncing those wonderful names. Um, it was a little joke I played on you, no, know it wasn't really. So, um, Jeremiah part two. If you were here last week, you'll know that we didn't get far, further than the end of chapter one. So, uh, Jeremiah being the longest book in the Bible, we've got quite a lot of work to do to finish the rest of Jeremiah today. But don't worry, we're going to go at a breakneck speed through the book, Whistle Stop Tour, and uh, hopefully it'll start to make sense. So, looking at our part two, judgment and hope. Thanks, sure, Gerald. Keep uh, keep going there. There's Prophet Jeremiah. Next slide, please. And I'm sorry, it's so it ought to be dark and rainy because then you will be able to see uh, what's happening in this map. I will my old-school low-tech pointer. This, uh, you'll recognize this from last week. So Babylon had inherited this empire from the Assyrian Empire, and um, there's Jerusalem there. 586, the, f- the city finally fell, uh, and there was a second deportation of people back to Babylon, and in that number were Daniel, uh, Mordecai, Remember Mordecai from the book of Esther and others, Ezekiel as well. And um, Jeremiah's task at this time was to proclaim the judgment of God upon Judah, being the southern kingdom. Uh, The northern kingdom had already been taken into exile by the previous empire, Assyria. But now it's the southern kingdom's turn. And Jeremiah had been called to proclaim the judgment of God. And for years, the sixth century prophets had been proclaiming the judgment of God to uh, the people of God. But they didn't listen. Jeremiah was different in that to Jeremiah, God said, it's really going to happen. The warnings are finished. My patience is at an end. And the judgment finally fell in 586 and uh, the Babylonian Empire Uh, was extended right into Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was completely destroyed. Now, if you were here last week, you might have um, had a question in your mind. In chapter 1, do you remember um, when God says to Jeremiah, this judgment is going to come from the north? Well, if you look at the map, Babylon is to the east. There's a question arising in your minds. I can hear it even now, the clanking of the gears in your brains. Why did he say the north, when in fact Babylon is just to the east? It's quite a long way, but it's to the east. Ah, well that is because you would never take an army through the desert here. He would always follow the Tigris and Euphrates up the valleys and come down from the north. Yet another proof of why the Old Testament is a historical book. And did you notice in the reading the detail of um, that incident where, where uh, Jeremiah was taken out of the system, they had to go to a room, a special room, get some old rags and clothes, throw them down to Jeremiah, put these under the rope so that we can pull you out of the system. We'll come back to the system in a few minutes. The Old Testament is a historical book, and nobody has ever been able to properly say, no, that's, un- that's unhistorical, that never happened. The detail, the level of detail that is in the Old Testament to prove its veracity is amazing. So that's uh, put my low tech pointer away. Okay, so we've got to go pretty quickly now. Let's go to the next slide. This was where we were last week. Sorry, Gerald, you'll put a few steps on your app today. Uh, Jeremiah in pop- popular culture, do you remember uh, uh, a pessimist is sometimes known as a Jeremiah. Uh, there was a particular verse called a Jeremiah, ad, which I'd never heard of before I started looking at this. Uh, Jeremiah in popular culture. who did their homework last week? Uh, Sharon did her homework last week. So uh, what was the name of the marsh Wiggle oh. Oh. <laughs> You've let me down. Puddle gum, very good. The Silver Chair, C.S. Lewis. If you ever read The Silver Chair, what you come to realise is right at the end of the book, he is the real hero of the story. So homework for next week is go away and read the whole of The Silver Chair. What was the other bit there uh, in popular culture? Oh, yes. Did anybody listen to Leonard Bernstein's... um, Jeremiah Symphony? Just the first two minutes? Well, that's an outstanding task for you. The great thing about the homework that I set, as you know, is you don't have to do it. Who were the prophets? We had a quick look at the 8th century and 6th century prophets, who they were and what they would come to do. Basically, they were God's mouthpiece to the people proclaiming primarily the judgment of God, but also hope for the future and pointing towards Messiah. Jeremiah the man and his times, we saw that Jeremiah was called to be a prophet in a situation where uh, it was as bad as it could possibly get. It got so bad that people were queuing up in the Valley of Hinnom with their little ones to sacrifice them to Moloch. It was really awful. And that's why God was following through on his promise to destroy the kingdom, and the city. Then we looked in chapter one at the call of Jeremiah. We couldn't deal with everything, but we dealt with uh, the way uh, the call of Jeremiah came to him in his teens, in his teens, quite possibly at the age of 13. And when Jeremiah says to God, I'm a child, I can't do this. God virtually says to him, that's irrelevant. Get yourself ready. And we looked briefly at our response to all of that. So that was last week. We're going to go and uh, if we can have the next slide, please. This is where we're going today. Jeremiah, the persecuted prophet. Jeremiah, the persevering prophet. And as you can see, the peas gave out Jeremiah's message of judgment and hope. So uh, Jeremiah, the persecuted prophet. And what you'll notice this week is that we have a complete change in methodology. If we're going to get through the rest of the book, longest book in the Bible, we're going to have to go at a breakneck speed, and I'm going to have to just take you through the the various passages that I think are relevant to our study this morning. So, Jeremiah the persecuted prophet. Now, you remember last week, God had warned Jeremiah in chapter one that he would be persecuted. Uh, So, we're going to be doing lots of references. Chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I've made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, says the Lord. So God had warned Jeremiah that he would be persecuted. We're going to see how that happened. Turn with me, if you will, to chapter 11. As you can see, the methodology has begun. Jer- Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 21 and 22. Remember, Jeremiah was a priest from a family of priests from uh, a village to the northeast of Jerusalem called Anathoth. This, therefore, this is what the Lord says about the men of Anathoth, who are seeking your life and saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hands. So, these are people from Jeremiah's own community, from his own family, and we shall see that they actually get worse as we go on. They threaten to kill him because of his message. Chapter 20 and uh, verses 1 to 6. When the priest Pasha son of Emma, the chief officer in the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. He had Jeremiah, the prophet, beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. The next day, when Pasha released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, the Lord's name for you is not Pasha, but Magor Misabib. For this is what the Lord says, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. With your own eyes, you will see them fall by the sword of their enemies. I will hand all Judah over to the king of Babylon, who will carry them away to Babylon or put them to the sword. And so on and so on. So this is a priest, Pasha, who would have been well known to Jeremiah. He has Jeremiah beaten and put in the stocks. It's almost like um, living in, in, in kind of medieval England. And in the stocks, where he only stayed for a day, But the point of the stocks was that you would be publicly humiliated. That was the idea. Public humiliation. And all the oiks of Jerusalem, the teenage lads who had nothing better to do and who hadn't seen their their probation officer that particular week, they found anything they could get their hands on and they chucked it at Jeremiah in the stocks. So although... You may think, you know, a whole day in the stocks, maybe not that bad, but you're out in the, in the sun, it's blistering hot, you're being checked, all kinds of things. We won't go into detail what they threw at him, but he would have been publicly humiliated because he was God's messenger. Also, chapter 6, turning back to chapter 6, Jeremiah is in conflict with the false prophets. you remember last week we looked at uh, faithful prophets and false prophets? Chapter 6, verses 13 to 15. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious, Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them. He is in conflict with the false prophets, and he denounces them. But God is aware of these false prophets. Chapter 14, verse 11. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry, though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings. I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine and plague. He's going to judge the false prophets. And then he's in direct conflict with the prophet Hananiah. Now, that's in chapter 28. Hananiah is of the school of the prophets, but he's a false prophet because he's been saying to the king and to anybody else who would listen, don't worry. Jerusalem will never fall. It's the city of God. We're the people of God. God has promised to look after us. Chapter 28, verse 10. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah and broke it. Now, Jeremiah, um, in acting out this particular prophecy, had taken a yoke which you would put to lock in uh, an animal, uh, an ox or a horse or something like that, while you um, were plowing or it would pull a cart or something. He put the yoke on his neck uh, as a demonstration of the message of God to the people of God. So the prophet Hananiah takes the yoke off the neck of the prophet and broke it. And he said before all the people, this is what the Lord says. In the same way, will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, off the neck of all the nations within two years? So (laughs) rather rashly, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is going to be taken away within two years. At this, the prophet Jeremiah went on his way. Shortly after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, go and tell Hananiah, this is what the Lord says, you have broken a wooden yoke, but in its place you will get a yoke of iron. I will put an iron yoke on the necks of all these nations to make them serve Nebuchadnezzar. They will serve him. I will leave him, give him control over the wild animals. Then he goes to Hananiah and he tells Hananiah what this is, what uh, God has told him. This is what the Lord says I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year you're going to die because you've preached rebellion against the Lord. And in the seventh month of that same year, Hananiah the prophet died. You didn't mess with Jeremiah. So chapter 38, uh, that was the chapter that Dave read so ably for us. Um, the king at this time was Zedekiah, a very poor and a very weak king. And uh, King Zedekiah's officials cast Jeremiah into a system. Perhaps we could just see the next, the next slide. It's not very clear, but here you can see Jeremiah. I think it's being lowered rather than raised. If it had been raised, you wouldn't. I mean, it's that old picture of Fran Cotton completely covered in mud. But here is being lowered down into the cistern. A cistern was basically a hole in the ground where you could store water. In a very hot country, if you've ever been to a very hot country, you'll know that fresh water is at a premium. And um, so they cut. Hole in the ground, and it was like, um, you know, those old bottles of Matthias Rose. You'd have a hole in the top, it would go down like that, and then round like that, so the water would collect in the bottom. Only this one didn't really have much water in it, it was just mud. So they threw Jeremiah down to the cistern, there he was, sloshing around in the mud, and they were going to starve him to death. Verse one of chapter thirty-eight. We had it read for us. Um, this man should be put to death. Uh, these were the civil servants at that time. They came to Zedekiah. This man should be put to death. He's discouraging everybody. He's lowering their morale. He's in your hands, King Zedekiah. Said. The king can do nothing to oppose you. It's a remarkable thing for a king to say to his civil servants. I should do what you like. I can't do anything to stop you. Well. So they took Jeremiah, put him into the cistern, and uh, then Ebed-Melech, you can tell by his name that his parents were Molech worshippers. Now, he had survived the Valley of Hinnom. And so Ebed-Melech found out what had happened, and he thought that was outrageous that they were treating Jeremiah in this way. So he goes back to the king, (laughs) and it's remarkable as he goes to the king, they've thrown him into a cistern, he'll starve to death when there's no longer any bread in the city. And the king commands this man, take 30 men from here with you and lift the, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. He changed his mind within a matter of days. And Ebed-Melech takes the men, they get these old rags and clothes throw them down to Jeremiah, puts them under the ropes, and they lift him out of the city. They're literally saving his life. He was starving to death down there. He probably had some muddy water to drink, but he didn't have any food. So he's pulled out, but then he remains in prison. I guess that's King Zedekiah changing his mind yet again until Jerusalem falls in 586. And then the Babylonians come, they destroy the city. But what do they do? They release all the political prisoners. That's what new regimes do. So they release him uh, from prison. And he's taken down to Egypt with Baruch, his, uh, his scribe. And he remains there for the rest of his life, chapter 43. And he's probably abducted, frankly, because um, he'd been preaching for a long time that Judah's salvation was not to be found um, in Egypt. That was the, the, uh, the other power at that time, but he was taken down to Egypt and that's where he died. So the next slide is Jeremiah the persevering prophet. Jeremiah had been given an unenviable task, hadn't he? He was to preach the judgment of God to a people that were not going to listen. God had already told him, they won't listen to you. In fact, you're not even to pray for them, because that's the extent of the seriousness with which I now uh, am going to be dealing with them. Chapter 18, verse 11. Therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look, I'm preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. So God was saying to Jeremiah, you can preach your heart out till you're blue in the face, but they're not going to listen. But you're still to do it. He was bound to be unpopular, wasn't he, Jeremiah? And then Jeremiah bears his heart before God and tells God of his struggles. This is Jeremiah the man now, tells God of his his struggles, chapter 15, verse 15. You understand, O Lord. Remember me and care for me. Avenge me on my persecutors. Your long-suffering, do not take me away. Think of how I suffer reproach for your sake. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. This was a man whose jaw was not made of steel. He's a man with a soft heart. And Jeremiah's task broke his heart. Those lovely videos that we watch um, made by the Bible Project, they're wonderful. And uh, I'm not sorry that we showed the whole one of the Book of Lamentations. It's seven minutes, so it's quite long. But that's probably the only time you'll ever look at the Book of Lamentations, frankly. And uh, it was great because when I when I saw that video, I thought that's the book of Lamentations explained in a way that I can understand. I thought it was absolutely superb. But but Jeremiah, it's very clear to me, wrote the book of Lamentations, even though they kind of indicate that we don't know. Well, we did know up until the 20th century. And then the 20th century, uh, scribes and Pharisees, it seems to me, the scholars got hold of it. And these various poems, five or six poems and so on. Oh no, they're all by different authors and it's just been put together. That's not the case at all. If you read any poetry at all, if you're a student of poetry, you will know that poets often use different styles when they're writing poems. They're not locked into one particular style. So it's pretty clear to me, there's nobody else that could possibly have written the book of Lamentations. And as we read there, those five poems of lament for Jerusalem and its people are heartbreaking. When he saw the destruction of Jerusalem, he saw the fulfillment of his own prophecies and it broke his heart. Jeremiah served God for over 40 years. He was the persevering prophet he persevered with his task long after we would have given up. Certainly I would have given up. I'm good for about a couple of years, and then I give up. As far as we're aware, as, as we are aware, only Baruch, his faithful servant and scribe, remained with him. In fact, elsewhere you find that God forbids Jeremiah to marry. He wants Jeremiah to be alone. And he's completely and utterly alone, and only Barak remains with him. And he serves God through the reigns of five kings for forty years. Isn't that opposite that we celebrated Pauling sixty-two years? Well, Jeremiah is just a kind of lad, really, compared to Pauling sixty-two years. It's remarkable. But Jeremiah lived in a time when to be a faithful prophet of God was not. Uh, popular or the thing to be, really. And um, when Rob Dalton was talking about having served in Haiti for two years and talking about the attrition rate of people serving in Haiti, it made me think about the attrition rate of faithful prophets in the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. The spirit of Jeremiah. <laughs> is needed today, isn't it, in the face of difficulty, discouragement, even disillusionment. And the fact that he kept going is a remarkable testimony to what God had done in his life. And then thirdly and lastly, oh, sorry, there's there's, there's Jeremiah in in, uh, popular culture again. This is um, prophet of Jeremiah, um, considering the lament, his lament over Jerusalem, and it's by Rembrandt. Just mention that. That was going to be a homework question, but never mind. Next slide, please. Uh, Here we are. Jeremiah's message of judgment and hope. Because you would have thought that Jeremiah, being the kind of character he was, the kind of man he was, he only really had a negative message. But that's not the case. There's no doubt that Jeremiah's primary message is one of judgment, which is indeed fulfilled in his own lifetime. The city is destroyed, sacked, And the people suffer two deportations to Babylon, the second one being completely catastrophic, where the temple is destroyed, the city walls are destroyed, and so on. However, even in Babylon, God is at work. I mentioned Ezekiel, Daniel, Esther and her uncle Mordecai, and so on. And I strongly suspect that at some point or other, they had listened to the message of Jeremiah. I have no evidence for saying that. I just, it's a fancy, really. But I quite fancy that idea. But in chapter 32, um, he's given the opportunity, if you like, to put his money where his mouth is. This is an interesting story. So a relative comes to him, verse six. And wants to sell him some family property. Verse 6. The word of the Lord came to me, Hanamel, son of Shalem, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it's your right and duty to buy it. Just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the garden and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Since it's your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanumel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. That was, uh, you know, our property prices are high, but that's, that's good money. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, Weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the the son of Marseilla, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who'd signed the deed and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard. Well, it goes on and on about the fact that he publicly bought this land, did it in full public gaze. Everybody could see what he was doing. Now, you may think, why is that detail being um, outlined here? Why is it important? It's important for this reason. This relative, you remember his family, um, were not fans of Jeremiah. They threatened to kill him. He was not a popular relative to know. And this relative, it was a scam. It was a scam they were operating. And they sent this cousin down to Jeremiah, selling this land. Now, the land, that time, of course, was being occupied by the Babylonian army. So, if Jeremiah was going to buy, he was going to buy a completely worthless piece of land. They offered it to him. He, he weighed out the 17 shekels of silver and he bought it because. He was making a public statement that one day the people of God would return to Jerusalem and to the land. This judgment was not going to be forever. The people of God would return, and of course they did under Nehemiah's leadership when Ezra the scribe was preaching the word of God in Jerusalem. The land is occupied by the Babylonian army, but Jeremiah buys it as a sign to everyone that God will restore his people. So it's not a complete message of judgment and awfulness. There is hope here. And then, and this is where you will almost certainly have heard a sermon uh, from Jeremiah in chapter 31, Jeremiah points forward to the great extension of the covenant, the new covenant, chapter 1, sorry, 31 verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So in the midst of judgment, Jeremiah is pointing forward to the new covenant. Think about the Lord's table. And uh, th- uh, the version in Matthew, the new. This is my blood of the new covenant. Now, Chris, you, you may even know that uh, R. K. Harrison. Now, R. K. Harrison, Roland Kenneth Harrison, was an Old Testament scholar, and he wrote this little commentary in about 1973. It's quite old. And uh, R. K. Harrison, I had the. Uh, the blessings of having to read his introduction to the Old Testament, which is a mighty tome. Let me tell you, if you dropped it on your foot, you'd know all about it. R.K. Harrison wrote a wonderful introduction to the Old Testament, but it's as dry as dust. I keep it by the side of the bed, so when I can't sleep at night, I just do two or three paragraphs of R.K. Harrison, and I'm out like a light. It's soporific, sleep-inducing. So R.K. Harrison, Introduction to the Old Testament, not his greatest work. But he writes this little commentary, again, as to say, it's pretty hard work. But he's got a little section on the New Covenant. And you know what? Even though his language is laborious and boring, what he says in just two or three paragraphs is just wonderful. If you never get hold of it, it's just worth buying the book just for this little section on the new covenant. And I had to work hard, but he makes these points about the new covenant. The old covenant was given to the nation. Very important that we recognize this. And the judgment of God came upon the nation because the nation had broken the covenant. They'd broken it in all kinds of ways. But the new covenant was gonna be with individuals. So chapter 31 and those, first, and those verses thereafter are talking about a new covenant where obedience would come from the heart. I will write my law within their hearts. It would also indicate personal responsibility. So there was a national responsibility to obey God, but now this would be personal responsibility to obey God under the terms of the new covenant. Thirdly, it would have a permanent validity, a permanent validity. Because if God was going to do this, it meant that the old terms of the covenant had been broken. It wasn't really any use anymore because the nation had broken it so often and so much, it wasn't really much use anymore. That's not God's fault. It's Israel's fault. It was going to be a a permanent covenant. I will write my law within their hearts. And it was going to be, and this is, this is the bit that interests us, it was going to be for the whole of mankind, because it wasn't going to be a national covenant anymore. It wasn't going to be just for the nation of Israel and Judah. It was to be with individuals. Now, that opens up the territory for Gentiles like you and me. And that's exactly, of course, the message of Acts 2 and the rest of the New Testament where the gospel is preached to Gentiles, to the whole world. Salvation was no longer going to be restricted to Israel and Judah on ethnic lines, if you like, and maybe one or two others who came in. It was going to be for everybody. Now, this is remarkable. A few years ago, uh, actually quite a a number of years ago, it's at least um, 20 years ago, probably 25 years ago, I went with Trevor Archer to the Philippines. I didn't enjoy it very much. It was very hot and sticky and I was uncomfortable. And, um, but I remember one Saturday afternoon, we were in this little one-horse town called Pinamalayan, in the middle of nowhere, really. Um, and uh, we had the afternoon off and uh, we, t- we took a little tucker-tucker into the town. When I say town, that's a gross exaggeration. Uh, to just a small village, really. It had a street market, and uh, we went around looking at the things uh, to buy on the street market. There were goods uh, that were um, labelled and branded Manchester United, and uh, I'm sure they didn't come through the official website. But uh, I I remember buying Tom a little cap. I think it cost me 50 pence. Of course, Trevor, being the the kind of, he's looking through this, all the quality is not very good. But uh, anyway, I was quite happy with it. And um, all of a sudden, in front of us was a Stone Age man. Remember that book, certainly I grew up in my childhood with, Stig of the Dump? Do you remember that? Where a little boy, a little English boy, suddenly finds a friend who's a Stone Age boy. <laughs> there was this man standing in the marketplace who's a Stone Age man. He'd, his hair had never seen the barber. It was out here. His skin was covered with multiple layers of dirt. He was wearing a, a loincloth, nothing else. He'd come down to Pinamaline out of the mountains. It's this tribe of Stone Age people living up in the mountains. I think I took a picture of him uh, and uh, I've got it somewhere. And the gospel in Pinamaline, there were people in Pinamaline who were taking the gospel out to that mountain tribe. I'll never forget it, meeting this man, him putting his hand out and just going, oh, oh, he wanted us to give him something. And uh, even to that Stone Age tribe, the gospel has gone because of the new covenant. And that's a great difference. Chapter 31, verse 31, it's a great difference between religion And the Christian faith, because religion says you've got to obey, you've got to do stuff, you've got to please God, you've got to try your best. And millions of people, millions of people across the world have that as their methodology for getting into heaven. Do your best. The Christian faith says the judgment of God has fallen on Christ. And if you put your faith in that judgment made upon God at the cross, he will save you. That's a great difference. So to finish, we hold out a message of judgment and hope as well. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, I think I might have said this last week, it's like a picture of looking at the human heart, utter failure. We just can't do it. We're sinful people and we cannot keep God's law. The judgment of God has fallen upon Christ. And that gives us hope for the future. In fact, it's the only hope for the world. It's our only hope. And if you put your faith in Christ on what he did at the cross, you will find that at the final judgment day, you won't be judged. And your faith will be counted as righteousness because of what he has done. God has acted decisively in sending his son as the Messiah, who was perfect, keeping the law, the covenant obligations on our behalf, taking the punishment for our sin. This message is conquering the Gentile world, and the church is sending missionaries to the most remote corners of the globe. Our message is now that Jesus has taken God's judgment on himself at the cross, we don't have to fear that final day of judgment. It will come. We don't know when, but it will come. And this is a great message of hope because now we can look forward to life beyond the grave in heaven. So when we die, we're, we're lowered into the ground or our ashes are scattered, but we're going to be in heaven with God If you have faith in Christ and his sacrifice for your sin, you can be saved from the wrath to come. And that's what Jeremiah could see vaguely in the future in the new covenant.